All right, well, welcome back for the, the sequel. Uh, dis- despite the fact that sequels are not typically as good as the original, we're going we're gonna to change that. This is going to be amazing. We've got, we've got the same cast of characters, uh, but new and interesting stuff. So I'm just going to dive in right here to, to keep us on track. And we're going to start off this afternoon by talking about pathophysiology, um, which everybody loves. Um, so we're going we're gonna to try and make it kind of interesting and digestible. Um, I'm going to focus a little bit more on uh, basically the, the frequently asked questions that we get from our patients and, and what, what good answers uh, uh, might address some of those questions. Uh, and then we'll, we'll finish off the afternoon with, <clears throat> with a, a bit on acute and uh, preventative management of migraine <clears throat> and chronic migraine. So with that, um, we have our obligatory disclosure slide. I'll leave that up there for a few seconds for people who really like to read disclosure slides. Um, All right. And now some objectives. Um, Really what we're going to focus on is the fact that that migraine is actually a very complex neurological disorder. And, And despite the fact that uh, for many decades, we thought of it as a, as a vascular disorder. Um, current science uh, really seems to indicate that it's, it's more of a neurovascular disorder, kind of heavy on the neuro, and that a lot of the very complex uh, issues that come along with migraine, including the, uh, the premonitory phase and the aura and the sort of the letdown afterwards, is part of that very complex neurologic process. So we're going to talk about that in a little bit more detail. We're going to talk to you about the specific regions of brain that uh, are either active in migraine or perhaps uh, exhibit some increased blood flow or perhaps even show some volume decrease. And then we're going to talk about um, maybe some new mechanisms to treat migraine. It's going to lead into the uh, uh, to the preventative treatment talk. And actually, to some degree, it'll, it'll touch on some of the acute treatments that are kind of, um, you know, coming up in the, in the very near future. So question number one that, that really comes up frequently, uh, at least among my patients, is, well, okay, thanks for uh, treating my migraine and giving me an acute treatment and a preventative treatment, but I would really like you to get down to the bottom of why I have them. And what's the cause? And, uh, and then these are the same people that get very unhappy when, uh, you know, when they have a normal MRI, right? You share them a, no- a normal MRI, and it's almost like an anxiety-provoking experience. Because people want that answer, right? They want to be able to point to the one thing that you can kind of pluck out and fix, and then everything's all better. And, and really what that leads to is the discussion that, again, migraine, very complex uh, neurological disorder that, that really has a genetic basis. And so I touch on the fact that at this point we have identified a number of genes, specifically in familial hemiplegic migraine. These are genes that, he, that we've known about for, for decades now. But over time, we've begun to identify other genes that, uh, that are associated with familial migraine and, uh, and a number of other areas that are abnormal in people with migraine. So so I frequently have to explain, okay, uh, yes, we, we don't have a tumor to go after, but we have abnormal genes as sort of a, uh, an explanation for why you're like this, despite the fact that every study we've done is normal. And keeping in mind that those genes are really uh, why this has become a, a hypersensitivity syndrome that you're experiencing. 
Um, and, and that's really how I kind of frame the discussion. <clears throat> it's good to talk about the, the way migraine evolves and, and really break it down into its component pieces. And, and what you see here is, um, is, a, is a little timeline that identifies how migraine evolves for, for many people with, with migraine. And, and it starts with some premonitory symptoms, which a lot of people don't recognize as being part of the migraine complex. And, and you can see that even some of those premonitory symptoms are just so unusual that they might otherwise uh, evade detection as being part of someone's premonitory phase. So for instance, um, you know, we see some kind of mild light sensitivity and sound sensitivity, but we also see yawning and polyuria. Very strange, right? And, and a lot of people don't necessarily associate that with their migraine. And interestingly enough, and we'll show you a slide coming up in a little bit, but, but the premonitory phase of migraine, and perhaps some of these, uh, some of these phenomena are actually explained by, by some of the increase in, in hypothalamic blood flow that, that is seen in migraine patients during that particular phase. The other interesting thing to highlight there is that a lot of people begin to think that, um, that or, or at least uh, misidentify triggers um, in that they think that they have triggers when they're really just premonitory events. So, for instance, um, there are people who uh, say, well, you know what, uh, every now and then I'll eat chocolate, and then next thing I know, um, you know, I have a migraine. So chocolate is my trigger, when in fact it may be some of these cravings uh, or, or other behaviors that are part of this premonitory phase that lead to something like that that then eventually would have led to migraine anyway, even if they hadn't eaten chocolate, for instance. And the confusing part to me is I, I can't really think of chocolate or craving chocolate as a, as a paroxysmal thing. It's kind of a continuous thing for me. So um, then we move on to the aura phase. And the uh, aura phase does not necessarily affect all migraine patients. Um, in fact, it's only about 30% uh, that will have aura. And the overwhelming majority of them um, somewhere in the order of about 90% or so, are going to have visual aura, right? A positive phenomenon that's involving both eyes. And when, when we look at the definitions of aura, uh, for the most part, we are looking for positive phenomenon, right? The flashing lights, the, the kind of sparkle, the sparkles, the, the fortification spectra, things like that, tends to evolve and change over time, and very importantly, occurs in both eyes. So, um, th those are some important features. It's, it's also important to note that they, uh, that they evolve over time and kind of move across uh, the visual field a little bit. Those are all very reassuring things. And even though the ICHD defines uh, aura as being a phenomenon that lasts between 5 and, and 60 minutes, um, it's actually not too uncommon for people to experience aura that lasts for several hours. And when we talk about uh, things like uh, like motor symptoms that we that we attribute to aura, uh, not only is that a negative phenomenon, but it's a phenomenon that can last for several days. So, um, really, the only point there is that we might have to reevaluate our definitions of aura again. The more we the more we learn about it. Um, moving on to the the headache phase, uh, again, this can be very variable. Um, some people just a, a few hours, but some people several days. And the other important point here is that between the premonitory phase and the aura phase and the headache phase, um, they're, they're not specific endpoints, right, that lead into the next one. And, and more often than not, you actually see kind of a melding of the two 
uh, an overlap where one leads into the other. And classically, we think of aura as being something that occurs specifically before the migraine attack, when in fact it can occur in the middle of the migraine attack, at the start of the migraine attack, or at any other time. Uh, most people are going to get it before, um, and I would also say most people have it kind of blend into the onset of their pain. And then we have postdrome, which again is that uh, sort of letdown period, that, that, uh, that feeling of being uh, foggy or not quite right, uh, that hangover feeling that a lot of people experience after migraine. And, um, and you see the big question mark down there. I don't think anyone has really done uh, a, a lot of great investigative work at this point to figure out where in the brain uh, we can point to for the uh, postdrome. So the vascular theory, um, I, I touched on it a little bit. It's, it's sort of an antiquated theory at this point, but yet we still see people from time to time that come in with a diagnosis of vascular headaches or, or they come in having... Uh, uh, had the explanation that it's, uh, it's as simple as a, a, a dilation and a constriction of vessels that really explains their pain. And, um, and you know, as neurologists, we, we are, are guilty of that as well for decades and decades until, again, the, the science really has caught up with, with the true pathophysiology of migraine. And it appears that um, the vascular theory, uh, at least as it's outlined here, where the aura is a vasoconstriction, the pain is a vasodilation. Um, e even though you may see some of those changes to some degree, um, that's really not the source. That's really not the crux of, what, um, of what's producing all of the, the components of migraine. And to back that up, uh, a number of studies have been done where uh, someone will be given a medication that is provocative, for instance, nitroglycerin, uh, to provoke an attack and yet it does not seem to produce the kind of vasodilation that we would expect if that first theory was true. We've also noted that, um, that cerebral vessels uh, really do not seem to be very dilated in people who are just experiencing their routine attack. And, uh, and again, that, that, that's contrary to that original thought, and it really points to a more neuronal, uh, a, a neuronal cause of their problem. Um, we also see that, that drugs that produce vasoconstriction don't necessarily make people better. So um, I'm just going to advance this so I can just pull up all of the, the parts here. So what we think is that there is a number of pain pathways that are involved in migraine. And while to some degree there, are some, uh, there is some activation of, uh, of trigeminal nociceptors that are, are innervating the meningeal blood vessels and the dura, um, there is the rest of the story, which is that it's feeding back into the uh, trigeminocervical uh, complex where it meets with some of the upper cervical roots in the, uh, in, in the uh, kind of lower brainstem and upper part of the cervical cord. And it does explain why a lot of people with migraine experience neck pain. It does explain why some people with neck injuries do have an ag aggravation of their pre-existing migraine. And then you see that, uh, that from there, uh, there are additional pathways that move up towards the thalamus and then out uh, into various other parts of brain that, that we would refer to as the pain matrix, and which we'll touch on here in a little bit. <clears throat> when we talk about activation of the hypothalamus, I mentioned that briefly when we talked about the premonitory phase and the fact that uh, some functional studies seem to indicate that there is an increase in, in blood flow uh, into the hypothalamus 
uh, when someone is experiencing those premonitory symptoms. But yet we also see in other functional studies that there are um, there, there is activation of the hypothalamus in, uh, in, the, in the pain phase as well. And, um, and this is in migraine. We, we definitely know that there's some uh, association between hypothalamic activation in things like cluster that has sort of a paroxysmal uh, rhythmicity and, and uh, periodicity to it. But migraine is, is similar in that respect that, um, that the hypothalamus seems to be affected to some degree. Um, we also see some activation of brainstem during acute attacks. And, uh, and, and again, when we, when we think of all the things involved in that, in that entire pathway, uh, there are a number of structures within the, within the brainstem that essentially act as breaks. Right? So, for instance, the periaqueductal gray, which uh, can certainly be uh, inhibitory in some of the, uh, the pain of migraine and sometimes is dysfunctional um, as, uh, as the physiology of migraine begins to unfold. Um, but even outside the PAG, uh, there's a number of other brainstem areas that have been shown to be active during the migraine phase. And then when we talk about aura, classically we talk about these waves of cortical spreading depression. And sure enough, uh, at least in rodent models, when you stimulate uh, the surface of the brain with potassium, uh, you can actually activate some of that very slow cortical depression uh, that's very wave-like and seems to kind of spread forward and move rather slowly over time. Migraine in the neck. I, I again, touched on that a little bit when we talked about the trigeminocervical complex. Um, again, about 75% of people with migraine are going to report neck pain. And, uh, and there's a very good explanation why. There, again, there's that overlap between the uh, between the uh, trigeminal nucleus and the upper roots of the cervical cord, and there seems to be some referred pain that goes back and forth between the two. And, and I think about specific examples that, um, that I, I think just really highlight this, uh, this anatomy beautifully. I think of a, uh, of a bartender that I saw as a patient once who had a, a glass bottle explode, and he, and he got a lot of glass fragments in his eye, and yet all of his pain was occipital, it was posterior, so it was neck and occipital. And then, of course, I think we've all had a number of patients that, um, that have had an injury to their neck, um, a whiplash injury, an assault, something like that, and, uh, and will experience their pain uh, as migraine in, in other distributions other than the, uh, the back of their head and neck. This was a great study, actually, by, uh, by a, a good friend and colleague, Molly Johnson, at UCLA, um, where that, that was put to the test a, a bit where uh, the upper cervical roots were actually stimulated. And sure enough, in, in people with a history of migraine, uh, you stimulate C1 and, and they do experience a lot of periorbital or retroorbital pain. And even in people without a history of migraine, you start stimulating C2 and C3 and all of a sudden you start getting a lot of occipital and temporal pain. So that's, uh, that's just a very interesting study and, and really a testament to that anatomy. Um, all right, question number one. Um, the following brain regions may be activated during a migraine attack. A, the hypothalamus. B, the thalamus. C, the cortex, or all of the above. Anyone like all of the, yeah, everyone likes all of the above. All of the above is right all the time, right? <laughs> so uh, a number of other studies have, have also been done just on... Um, 
on brain volume and reduction in brain volume in certain uh, uh, areas thought to be uh, important in migraine. And specifically, we're, we're talking about the, the cingulate gyrus, uh, the insula, the frontal, temporal, and prefrontal cortex. Uh, all of these areas seem to, to, uh, to have some reduction in brain volume in people with migraine, especially when their frequency of attacks is very high. And the, the question that remains from that, though, is, is it, um, are there migraines a consequence of that reduction in, ba- in brain volume, or is the brain volume a consequence of, uh, of, a frequency of, of, of their increased frequency of headache? And that's, uh, that's not yet resolved, but it's an interesting phenomenon to have noted. All right, so the other frequently asked question that, um, that comes up all the time, it's those white matter lesions, right? Those, those UBOs that, um, that your, your patient will come to you and, and either say, uh, I have something abnormal in my brain, I don't know what it is, I, I, I need to know whether or not I need to be worried about it, or in the worst case scenario, they come to you saying, so I was diagnosed with MS, and, um, and I'm just kind of wondering what you think about that. And I've seen both. And um, it's not uncommon for people with migraine to have these white dots. And, and the, the, the point here is that we, we don't really know what they are or why they're there, but that they occur very frequently. And more importantly, in the, in the camera study, which, uh, again, was a very, um, a very interesting study that, that sort of followed these individuals longitudinally over time and, and really meant to, to look at how they turned out um, seems to indicate that there's no reason to think that they lead to anything dangerous. Specifically, they do not lead to any uh, impairment in cognitive function, and in people with migraine, don't seem to lead to any increased risk of stroke or any other uh, cerebrovascular issue. So, um, so again, the the counseling that I give in this particular scenario. Um, and keeping in mind that uh, you know you're going to get a variable response when when you say I don't know, but um, but the answer is I, I don't know what they are or why they're there. But I can tell you that they occur frequently. They appear to be very benign and followed over time. There's no reason to think that they will lead to any impairment that you might have in the future. All right. So CGRP, where where is our our person from this morning? I, I, I tried to entice her to come back so we could uh, answer her question, and she's not here. Stood up. Man. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to touch on this a little bit. She, she still has an opportunity. Uh, we're going to talk about her question in the uh, uh, prevention part of the uh, afternoon. But CGRP, uh, we have identified as a very important neuropeptide in migraine. And, uh, and again, this is really... Uh, something that has been um, years, decades actually in the making where um, a lot of studies have been done to really uh, isolate CGRP as a, um, uh, a, a very specific trigger for migraine patients. And, and we see that it does increase in their circulation during the attack phase. We see that if we actually infuse a migraine patient with CGRP, we can elicit an attack. And uh, as you'll see in the, in the prevention talk, uh, it seems that CGRP antagonists do actually a, a pretty good job at preventing uh, migraine and also addressing acute attacks. Um, another important thing to note is that more recently we have begun to see evidence that CGRP also seems to be elevated in cluster headache. 
And there's some uh, evidence at this point that in things like post-traumatic headache that we also see elevations in CGRP. So CGRP is important, um, but not necessarily specific to migraine. And sure enough, a number of studies have just come out within the past year uh, identifying those uh, specific CGRP antagonists that seem to be good preventatives. Again, we'll touch on this more um, in the next couple of sessions. All right, so pathophysiology, question two. Um, which of the following are true? Cerebral and meningeal blood vessels are dilated during migraine attacks. Meh. Eh, okay. Uh, the volume of descending pain modulatory centers is, uh, is increased in chronic migraine patients. Right, it's decreased. Blood levels of CGRP are elevated in migraine attacks, but not cluster headache. Right, in both. White matter lesions in patients with migraine are not associated with a decline in cognition. Yeah. So if it's not all of the above, go with D. <laughs> D, that's... All right, some clinical pearls to, to kind of wrap up a little bit. So when you speak with your patients and, uh, and, and you do the education piece uh, of, your, of your visit, um, ask about the premonitory symptoms. Use them to actually help the patient not only understand the process that they're experiencing, right, to understand the complexity of their disease state, but also use that to help them understand when uh, or how to use that as, a, as an identifier that they might be about to have a migraine, right? And there are some strategies that you can use when you know a migraine is on the horizon that a knowledge of premonitory symptoms might help. Um, and, and ask those, those unusual questions, right? The, uh, the yawning, the urination. Um, here we, we talk about concentration and fatigue, um, although I, I, I would argue that um, if you ask uh, 100 people if they're fatigued, you might get 100 yeses. So, <clears throat> Neck pain. Um, remember, neck pain is very common between the two, and, and I see a, a, a lot of instances where um, it leads to perhaps a, a, a misdiagnosis or a missed opportunity to treat uh, in a different way. Um, remember, 75% of people with migraine are going to have associated neck pain. And there's no reason why you need to treat one or the other. And quite frequently, we do actually treat migraine, and we also treat some of the neck issues as well. And try and, uh, and treat them in concert seems to be, uh, seems to be very effective. Um, here, uh, the, the, the big warning here is migraine patients with neck pain do not need a scan of their neck. I would, uh, I would agree with that. Um, a, a good neuro exam will probably answer the question for you whether or not there's any uh, spinal cord or nerve root involvement. Um, <clears throat> where I do uh, break that rule a little bit is um, just a plain film, just a plain x-ray of the neck, usually inflection and extension, and sometimes that can give me some clues as to whether or not there are other factors that might be leading to some neck pain that will aggravate migraine. Ask about allodynia. So we, we didn't touch on that very much, um, but that was in that timeline slide where allodynia tends to occur uh, during the migraine phase, during the pain phase, but can occur in that postdrome as well. Uh, and, and again, allodynia is, is really just the, uh, the, the state of, of being hypersensitive uh, to things that should not be painful. And there are many uh, migraine patients who will report to you that during their, uh, during their migraine and sometimes well after their migraine, they can't wear glasses, they can't wear a hat, they don't want to be touched. 
they, they just want to be left alone. And that's really, um, that, that's really what allodynia is all about. Um, it's very common in here. Uh, I, I think the, the, the guideline here is that uh, just asking about it, knowing about it, educating about it will, will kind of help with that, uh, that bond with your patient uh, showing that, okay, you know what you're talking about. All right, so uh, I'll just summarize the, uh, the pathophysiology uh, 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 talk here. Uh, premonitory symptoms, they, they can precede migraine, um, not only just hours, but also days. Remember, sometimes they can blend into the other phases of migraine, uh, including the aura phase, and, um, and that migraine is really a complex neurological disorder. It's really a, a phenomenon of hypersensitization, um, hyperactivation of a lot of those pathways. Um, there are structural changes that occur in people with migraine. Um, there's, a, there's a very good anatomic basis for what they're experiencing uh, during all phases. And, uh, and we see that, or we suspect that over time, there are some structural consequences to, uh, to frequent attacks. And, um, and then lastly, CGRP uh, seems to be very important when it comes to not just migraine, but cluster and a lot of other headache disorders. And, uh, and I, think the, uh, uh, I think you will all probably see a lot of changes over the next couple of years when it comes to uh, treatments that we have that focus a little bit more on CGRP. And with that, I'm going to stop and I'm going to have Dr. Vanderploim uh, come up and talk to us about acute treatment. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, is the mic working a little bit? Okay, so for anyone who wasn't here this morning, my name is Dr. Juliana Vanderploim from the Mayo Clinic, and I have the pleasure of talking to you guys right now about acute migraine management. So here are my disclosures, much shorter than Dr. Vargas. Just getting started though. Okay, so <laughs> learning objectives. Um, over the next 20 minutes or so, we are going to talk about comorbidities and exacerbating factors that might uh, render your acute treatments less effective. And so it's not uncommon that you'll have a patient that you'll see and they say, I have tried everything. And if you pick that apart, they may have tried many things, but if you look at how they're actually using those medications, there may be some ways that they're using it that make them less effective. And so identifying that misuse um, can help make these things that have never worked for them potentially work. We're also going to talk about designing treatment plans for an individual patient. Uh, there is not one treatment plan that is perfect for all headache patients. It really is on an individual basis. And finally, uh, we're going to discuss employing something called the Migraine Treatment Optimization Questionnaire. This is a nice short questionnaire that can help identify areas for improvement in a patient's treatment plan. So the best way, I think, to go through this is to think about a patient that you might see in clinic. So this is a 29-year-old gentleman. He has had migraines for well over a decade now, and uh, he unfortunately hasn't seen you in over a year. Um, he had a new insurance provider and so just couldn't get in to see you. And he tells you that the reason he wants to see you today is because he needs you to override his insurance. He's just not getting enough of his triptan tablets and he needs you to provide more of them for him. 
And so what you come to discover is that he's given four tablets, um, I'm just going to say, of sumatriptan uh, per month uh, by his insurance provider. And uh, he tells you he gets three attacks. Now, if you didn't pick further, you would say, well, if you have three headaches per month and you get four pills, that should probably be enough for you, right? But when you pick more, you find that actually each attack is lasting two to three days. So really, in that month, he's having potentially up to you know, nine headache days per month. And if he's having those three attacks and they're lasting two to three days, um, however he's treating them does not appear to be working because they're persisting through or recurring. So when you ask him how he's treating each of these attacks, he tells you that he starts by taking some over-the-counter ibuprofen, and that's what he does at the beginning of, his month, of, of the month, but he really wants to save, you know, the good stuff uh, till later. And that's something we hear really commonly where patients almost kind of stockpile their medications because they're worried that, you know, maybe the next one's going to be the bad one, and so I don't want to waste my medicine on, on this one that isn't so bad. The other thing that he's doing is he's breaking his tablets in half or into whatever pieces they fall into and, and taking just a portion of his tablet, again, because he's worried that he's not going to have enough to carry him through the month. And so, unfortunately, his current strategies have ended him up in the emergency department three times now over the last three months. Nonetheless, he's run out of his medications anyways, even though he's trying to take other ones instead or break them into pieces. And um, he's become quite severely dehydrated um, on some occasions with his migraines uh, because of uh, his nausea and vomiting. So in this patient, um, why is this patient no longer responding to his treatment? Do we think it's A, because he's delaying his treatment? Any show of hands for that one? B, because he's taking the incorrect dose of his medication. Okay, some hands for that. Uh, because he's developed a tolerance to his triptan medication. D, all of the above. Or E, A and B. Okay, majority for A and B. And I would agree with that. So as we had talked about earlier this morning, you know, you've gone through, he has his diagnosis of migraine, so we don't need to really worry about that anymore. We're now into the later steps of the process where we're trying to review his prior treatments, we're trying to understand his unmet needs and develop an effective treatment plan for him. And so a useful tool for this is called the Migraine Treatment Optimization Questionnaire. This is a very short questionnaire that can be administered in the office and it has five domains. So the first question asks about functional response. So how quickly is your treatment working for you when you're able to get back to your normal activities? The second is consistency of onset and onset. So how often does your medication relieve your pain within two hours for most attacks? And so that's two hours is a common clinical endpoint that you'll see in a lot of trials. Recurrence. Uh, so does one dose of your medication usually relieve your head pain for a 24-hour period? Side effects, is your medication tolerated? And then global, how comfortable do you feel planning your day? Meaning, do you really feel that you can rely on your treatment so that you can make firm plans? And this is a really unfortunate feature that we see in a lot of migraine patients where they fear that they can't do something, that they want to make plans, and unfortunately, they just feel they can't commit to it because a migraine might come on, and they don't feel confident enough that they'll be able to treat it, treat it if it happens. So 
We administer that questionnaire and find that, unfortunately, he does not feel confident in his treatment, um, and he doesn't really feel that it works well for him, and so we need to formulate a better treatment plan for him. Now, the first thing when we think about formulating an acute treatment plan is that, again, that patient might say, I've tried everything, and so you just kind of start switching between different medicines. But it is really important to take a step back and really look at maybe the medicine that they're using just needs to be used differently. And so the first thing is encouraging patients to treat their headaches with the most appropriate medication as early as possible. And so for patients that do not have contraindications, in the migraine world, we really do prefer triptan and ergot medications as long as they don't have a contraindication to those. And so when the patient feels that a headache is coming on, we want them to treat early because this has been shown to improve the onset and consistency of response. It prevents disability and recurrence. Um, it reduces their need for a rescue, so an escalated treatment. And um, it also may reduce the risk of allodynia. And as you've kind of heard in different presentations, allodynia is a really important clinical feature for assessing how um, severe a migraine attack might be. From a pathophysiological standpoint, we have this belief that when a headache progresses to a state of allodynia, that might suggest that it's kind of gone from a peripheral sensitization to more of a central sensitization pattern, meaning that it might be harder for it to treat. And so if we can reduce that clinical allodynia, then maybe we're able to get the attacks into a place where they are more easily responsive to therapies. The other thing is that we want to optimize the dose. So when patients are talking about the fact that they're splitting their tablets in half or only taking a little bit, again, they're doing that because they want to prevent you know, um, running out, but at the same time, they might just be doing themselves a disservice because they don't take the full dose, and now instead of breaking the headache, it goes on for two or three days, and they're having to use up all their pills anyways, when if they had just taken the full pill right at the beginning, they wouldn't have had those extra days of treatment or of, uh, of headache. Um, the other thing there is sometimes patients are just leery about side effects, and so they're like, well, if I take a smaller dose, maybe I won't get as many side effects. And an important thing to clarify with patients is that what they might consider side effects might actually just be residual of an untreated headache. So they didn't take their full tablet, they feel kind of crummy, but the headache's okay. That might not be that, you know, that crummy feeling is because you took your half tablet, it might just be that you didn't fully treat your headache. And then the final thing is that we want to provide advice to them to reassure them that if your first-line therapy doesn't work, we are going to provide you with a second-line treatment and a rescue plan as well so that patients don't feel so panicked or worried that, you know, if I use this pill now and it doesn't work, what am I going to do? But the caveat here and where things get a bit complicated is, again, this idea of overuse. Um, and that's where you get patients that are so concerned about overusing medicines that they just don't take them at all. And then you have the patients that, um, you know, basically are taking medications even at the hint of maybe a feeling of maybe I might get, uh, maybe I yawned a bit too much, and so they take their medication. Um, and there isn't a good answer, you know, as far as when patients say, well, when should I take my medicine? Um, and that's something that has to be figured out with a bit of trial and error. So if you have advised them of all those ways to optimize their medications and it's still not working for them, another thing to consider is what symptoms are accompanying their headaches or how are their headaches starting. 
If the patient has a lot of nausea, vomiting, or symptoms suggestive of gastroparesis, then considering an alternative route of administration is really the best. Um, additionally, sometimes patients will wake with a migraine or they describe having crash migraines where the symptoms come on quite suddenly and severely. And especially with the patients that wake with a migraine, we always say treat early. But if you woke with it, we don't know if the migraine started the moment you opened your eyes or the migraine pathophysiology actually started hours before while you were sleeping. And so again, in that circumstance, you might be treating too late with those patients. So you want something that's going to get in their system and get in their system quickly. And so using injectables, nasal sprays, inhalers, or suppositories might be the best. Again, this idea of allodynia and nausea, those are both risk factors for chronification and more refractory headaches. So considering treatments that have faster onset of action, which often involves using an alternative route of administration, can be very helpful. So if you've tried all those things and you're still finding that the therapy is not working, then it's a matter of potentially switching drugs. So if someone is using a triptan, um, sometimes people think, well, if I tried one triptan and it didn't work for me, that means none of them will. There are seven different triptans, and if you fail one, that does not mean you'll fail the others. If you have side effects to one, it does not necessarily mean you'll have side effects to the others. There is not one best triptan. Um, there are some features to the different triptans that you can kind of use um, to help pick ones for certain patients. So as far as onset of action, risotriptan and elotriptan have a faster onset, and so those might be better for patients that wake first thing in the morning with a headache or have kind of the crash migraine. For patients that describe having headaches that persist, so you know they'll wake the next day and the headache comes back, then uh, elotriptan, almotriptan uh, can be good options. Additionally, adding an NSAID can sometimes help sustain that uh, original benefit. Um, and then tolerability-wise, for the patient who just can't take anything or says they get too many side effects, uh, the narotriptan or almotriptan are sometimes better options there. If the patient does indeed try multiple triptans and it just doesn't work for them or they're just not tolerated, then you can consider switching to other classes of medications. And so that includes things like DHE, um, that includes things like uh, dopamine blockers, so the neuroleptic antinauseants, and then also um, NSAIDs. Okay, so... As we talked about earlier, when it comes to the acute treatment plan, we have our primary acute treatment, so that's the first line, use early in the attack. We have the secondary acute treatment, and so that's if the headache reoccurs, what are you going to do? And then there's the rescue therapy. So if everything has failed so far and you're in a really bad way, then what is going to be kind of the, the go-to medication? And as far as choosing these, there's a couple of things to consider. Uh, we have to keep in mind the severity and degree of disability that someone is experiencing. There have been studies that have looked at things like stratified care or step care. Um, you know, so if you have a mild headache, take your ibuprofen. Uh, if you have a more severe headache, take your triptan. Bottom line, it seems that if patients are not having very frequent headaches, it's probably best to just treat all headaches kind of equally. Um, duration of headache condition uh, pretreatment, so how far into the headache are you? Uh, triptans uh, sometimes don't work as well if it's later into a headache. Sometimes IV, uh, NSAIDs or DHE might work better once they're 
you know, past the 24-hour period or more into a headache pattern. Uh, again, looking at nausea, vomiting, gastroparesis, so considering alternative routes of administration. Uh, this is a common thing that I'll hear that someone takes their medication, throws up 15 minutes later, and then tells me none of their medicines worked. I'm not really surprised about that because they're in the toilet. Um, and so um, the other thing is just patient preference. And uh, some patients, no matter, you know, if it, you might say, I think, you know, an injectable is best for you, but they have needle phobia, and, and so then that's just not an option. Okay, looking at the pharmacology of oral triptans, as I said, there isn't one best triptan. Um, they do have some different features, though, from a pharmacological standpoint. Um, two things that stand out are as far as half-life. So frovatriptan and naratriptan are both the outliers in half-life. Frovatriptan is a very far outlier with a half-life of 26 hours, and then naratriptan has a half-life of about six hours, and then the rest of them have half-lives that kind of range between two to four hours. Um, the reason that's just something to keep in mind is, for example, for menstrually-related migraine, when we consider mini-bridges, we often will use the long-acting triptans like frovatriptan or naratriptan as just a short-term bridge uh, for that period over their menstrual cycle to kind of uh, get them through that uh, bad migraine. And as far as uh, rapid onset, as I had mentioned earlier, uh, rizotriptan and elatriptan have uh, the fastest onsets of action. So when we compare kind of overall all the various treatments that are available to us, the top few are FDA approved for migraine and obviously will be our first choice therapies. And this is a nice table because it kind of goes through, you know, what we would often choose for primary acute, what we would choose for secondary acute, and what we would more commonly choose for a rescue therapy. Now, for the top therapies, we're probably all pretty familiar with those. As far as the bottom therapies, the ones that are not FDA approved, that's where we start getting more into the rescue therapies, as well as medications that we consider in patients that may have contraindications to the more standard therapies. And so that does include things like lidocaine nasal spray or patches, uh, muscle relaxers, uh, dopamine antagonists, so the neuroleptic anti-nauseants, uh, steroids, limited use. And then opioids, you'll see there, we basically kind of, they're included, but they're really uh, not something that we use commonly in, in headache management unless the patient really can't take any other therapies. How would you optimize this patient's treatment strategy. A, use an oral triptan early in the attack. B, increase dose of NSAID. C, switch to a long-acting triptan like naratriptan or frovatriptan to prevent recurrence. D, begin prevention. Or E, all of the above. Okay. So for this patient, what was recommended was that he should a, take his full dose of triptan at onset, and that we would, for his regular attacks, just continue with his oral triptan. But if he was having attacks that were accompanied by severe nausea or vomiting, or really any nausea or vomiting, that we would try a non-oral formulation, so nasal spray or injectable. And he had a preference for the nasal spray. And then if that still did not work for him, then he had a suppository prochlorperazine available as well as catorolac um, available as well. 
And one thing to consider is that, you know, when you're providing patients with these acute uh, primary, secondary, and rescue acute plans, um, it's not necessarily that they have to kind of step through each one in each migraine attack, but rather that sometimes it might be most appropriate to go right to the rescue depending on how the migraine starts. So for example, you know, if a patient wakes with a really severe migraine first thing in the morning and they have nausea and vomiting, I might tell them to go right to their nasal spray and add a prochlorperazine suppository and take their Ketorolac injection rather than again waiting um, because we know that the longer you wait, uh, the less effective these treatments may become. So what's new in acute treatment? Because we've talked a lot about medications, but there are many patients that would prefer not to use medications or that just simply cannot take medications. So a couple things that are coming up in neuromodulation for acute treatment of migraine, there are the vagal nerve stimulator devices, and so these are peripheral vagal nerve stimulators. And uh, the vagus nerve has been shown to innervate multiple anatomical structures involved in migraine. It may actually also inhibit cortical spreading depression. And uh, it has been shown to reduce allodynia and glutamate relief. And so this has been tested in migraine as well as cluster headache, and it's been FDA approved in episodic cluster headache as well as migraine. There is also external trigeminal nerve stimulation, and so this uh, was FDA approved based on a prospective open-label clinical trial, and this is a stimulation of the supraorbital nerve, so it's a device that's applied to the forehead. It has manual control of intensity. Uh, it's battery-powered, and it's, it's portable. Um, and so what they found in this trial was that mean pain intensity reduced by about 57, in 57.1% of patients at one hour, and at two hours, 52.8% uh, of patients, uh, they did not have any major adverse events or uh, subjective complaints with the trial. And then the other one, and this was uh, originally studied in migraine with aura, is transcranial magnetic stimulation. So this is a portable uh, magnet and they found that it can potentially inhibit cortical spreading depression as well as modulate cortical excitability. And so this was a randomized um, controlled trial. They found that uh, the um, active device was superior to sham stimulation, and so pain freedom at two hours was 39% versus 22% uh, in those that received sham. And you know, whenever we look at migraine trials, I think a lot of the time people say, well, those numbers I don't know, they don't look very, very good. Um, the bottom line is, unfortunately, with a lot of migraine trials, our numbers don't look great. And the thing is, is that the more options that we have for treatment, I think the better, because one shoe does not fit all for migraine patients. Um, and that probably speaks to the underlying pathophysiology of the disease in that we have a phenotype, but as far as what's happening in each of these migraine brains, it's probably not the exact same thing. And so treatment-wise, probably not each patient will um, respond to the same treatment. So some clinical pearls in closing. Most importantly, treat early in the attack. Um, for best efficacy, you want to use the highest dose first. And if there is lots of nausea and vomiting, you want to be using non-oral routes of administration. If a patient wakes with a uh, headache or if they have a fast onset headache, you want to use fast-acting formulations. 
And finally, we want the patient to leave with a plan that involves a primary acute treatment, a secondary acute treatment, and a rescue medication as well. And so that summarizes the acute treatment portion, and I will hand over to Dr. Vargas to talk about preventive strategies when patients are having more headaches than can just be treated with acute treatment strategies. Oh, can you, okay, there we go. The people in the front could hear me just fine. So, <clears throat> trust me, it was better with the mic off. Uh, all right, so uh, preventative uh, strategies, we'll, we'll get into that. Uh, the disclosures actually have not changed uh, in the last half hour. All right, so what we're going to do is address some of the questions that came up actually this morning, was uh, identify when is the right time to start a preventative treatment. We're going to talk about the specific treatments that, um, that we use frequently um, and, and along with their evidence base and, and kind of give you an, an idea of, of maybe some, uh, uh, some, some treatment options that uh, sometimes don't always come to mind that, that you might want to use with some of your patients. Um, we're going to talk about uh, maybe some of the uh, decision-making process that leads to us picking one preventative over another, essentially giving you a sort of a, a first-hand look into how our brains work. It's a scary place in there sometimes. Um, we're going to talk about when, um, when patients should decide to move on to another treatment and how long we should, um, we should expect a treatment to, uh, well, after how long we should ex expect a treatment to work. Um, the first thing that I really love to highlight, again, touching on some of the, uh, the great epidemiology work done by Richard Lipton, um, is really the fact that we underutilize preventative treatments. And so when, when we uh, look at large populations of people, and in this particular case, the AMPP study was looking at hundreds of thousands of people, tens of thousands of people uh, um, who, who had migraine, and, uh, and we look at not only the number of days that they experience attacks, but also the severity of those attacks and the degree of disability that they have with them. And then some independent uh, adjudicators looked at, at that data, uh, data to determine, okay, which one of these patients uh, should actually be on a preventative medication? Well, it turns out that it's about 40%. So 40% of the people with migraine are probable candidates for prevention, and yet uh, the, the stat that isn't up there is that only about 13% actually receive preventative therapy. So there's a huge gap in the number of people who might, uh, who might benefit and those who are actually getting it. Um, one of the discussions that I frequently have with patients um, is about what are really the goals of treatment and what am I looking to do? And it's, um, it, it's really more than decreasing the number of headache days that they have, but also I like to look at decreasing the frequency of their severe attacks. I like to think that it also helps them uh, respond a little bit better to their acute treatments. Uh, I like to see duration 
of acute exacerbations go down. Um, I also like to see a change in their, in their function and, and like to see a decrease in their disability. And so along with uh, what, what uh, Dr. Vanderplein was talking about with, with questionnaires to kind of help, uh, help guide what your next steps are going to be, uh, something like a HIT-6 or a MIDAS, um, very important to uh, people, with, uh, people who are treating migraine patients because that really gives you an idea of whether or not what you're doing is, is helping. Um, I, I can't tell you how many times I, I've had people come back and uh, especially when their headaches are daily, when they're unremitting, uh, when, they're, when it's a daily experience for them, um, how some of these ch subtle changes over time sometimes evade their detection and they don't necessarily uh, notice the, the change from A to B over a slow period of time. And it's not until you actually bring out a Midas and you actually show them that, wow, I, actually the, the amount of time you've been missing work or school has, has gone down significantly or the, uh, or the severity of your pain has gone down. So it's, it's actually very useful to, to collect that kind of data. Um, and then lastly, I, I like to tell them that my, my hope for initiating a preventative therapy is to try and prevent them from transitioning to a more severe form of the disease. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to keep them from developing something like chronic migraine. Lastly, you see the, at the bottom there, um, it's, it's so important to really highlight the fact that these benefits are not immediate. Um, I, I, I think we've all had people come back and say, well, I took the medication for a week and, and I, I'm no better. And, uh, and there's the, the opportunity to do a little education, a little cheerleading too, um, and tell them, okay, well, hang in there. We got a, we got a few, uh, few months to go before we really know. Um, <clears throat> some general principles, which are, um, are really more guidelines. And of course, there's, um, there, there's times when, uh, you know, you, you, you can, uh, maybe not follow these guidelines. There's, there's certainly going to be opportunities when that arises, but as a general rule, uh, we tend to start with low doses and increase slowly. So to highlight the portion, increase slowly, <laughs> right? Um, and by that I mean don't just start with a low dose and leave people at a low dose. Uh, I see that very frequently, especially with things like amitriptyline, um, where, where people have been given 5, 10. These are full-size adults, and they, they never advance that dose. Um, I can totally understand where medications that tend to produce some side effect issues, you want to start very low in some people, and that's absolutely okay. But do try and get them up to a more therapeutic level. Um, lastly, it, it now allow plenty of time for, a, uh, for an improvement to occur. And again, that's typically going to be a few months, so two to three months, and that's at the target dose. So, uh, you know, again... Uh, some, some patients expect an immediate response. Uh, it, it's going to have to take a little bit of counseling that, um, that it's, a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And then lastly, monitor their use of medication, not just their preventative medication, but also their acute medication. Uh, and I'm, I'm constantly on the lookout to make sure that they're not in danger of developing something like, a, uh, like some type of medication overuse headache uh, due to an, an, uh, an inadequately treated uh, or inadequately prevented uh, uh, use of migraine preventatives. And, uh, and I also try and, and monitor how they're doing on their preventative drug as well. So specifically, I do like to tell them, please do not discontinue the medication without letting me know. Because there are certainly times when 
you or someone else might have the opportunity to just fine-tune a few things, just tweak a couple of things that might actually address the problem that they're having and might actually put them in a better position to stay on the medication and give them a better opportunity to develop that positive response. Um, <clears throat> use a calendar or diary. Um, again, it doesn't have to be very elaborate uh, unless you have a lot of engineers as patients. Um, and for those of you with engineers as patients, they come in, there's charts, there's graphs, there's, it's in color, um, there's an app. It's, uh, it's amazing. Um, but it doesn't have to be that elaborate. I, I, I usually tell people, okay, I, I get that you have migraine, right? I, I sort of understand the, the associated features that you have. I don't need you to log every, uh, you know, every premonitory symptom you have or every associated feature you have and when it occurs because we've passed that point. Now it needs to be just very simple. Just tick the box, right? If you have a headache that day, I need to know about it. Did it respond to your acute treatment and how long did it last? That's all I need frequently when I'm looking at monitoring them over an extended period of time. I also, uh, it's, it's not on there, but again, just to kind of hit home the message that, uh, that questionnaires uh, like the MIDAS and the HIT-6, very, very helpful uh, in deciding whether or not what you're doing is helping. Um, if people are not responding, and, and here it says uh, six months, I, I, I may not necessarily uh, go a full six months. Sometimes I go a little sooner, especially if I get people up to an adequate dose and they've been there for about three months and we haven't budged the needle at all, uh, then I am a little bit more inclined to start looking at other options. Um, <clears throat> patient preference, very important, especially when we talk about, um, about things like pregnancy issues. Um, I, I have a lot of people come in and, and they say, okay, well, we're, we're gonna start to have a family. Uh, now we need to readdress the, uh, the treatments that you've laid out for me. And, um, and, and those are certainly going to completely change the, the management that, that, you, um, that you look at. Um, optimize their, their medication uh, in the sense that you want to look for something that is going to give them the best efficacy. And by that, I mean, uh, as a general rule, uh, you want to stick with things that, that tend to have a good evidence base to support their use, keeping in mind that there are plenty of medications that do not have an evidence base that can be very effective for an individual person. So I, I don't adhere hard and fast to the evidence-based uh, guidelines, but if I have uh, essentially a clean slate with a patient and I have to pick a medication, I'm typically gonna start with one that, um, that has a good body of evidence to support its use. Uh, consider the other issues that patients come in with when you make a selection. So again, here's kind of getting into our heads a little bit. Um, we, we always look for the twofer or the threefer, and, uh, and there are some that would believe that that never occurs, um, where you can actually treat someone's uh, sleep issue and their migraine or their depression and their migraine uh, or things you know, like uh, their blood pressure issues and their migraine, but it does happen. And, and so we, we go in with at least the, the desire to, to make that attempt. Uh, if for no other reason, to limit the number of medications that they're on uh, and, and thereby el eliminating the, the potential for some interactions and, and, uh, and issues with, with polypharmacy. So I do frequently try and, and get that twofer whenever I can. Uh, it's also important to note uh, some other things like GI issues and, of course, things like asthma. 
because they actually may lead you not to select certain medications. Um, for instance, uh, people with very, um, you know, very bad asthma and, and beta blockers, things like that. Considering prevention, to your question, sir, um, here's, here's sort of a, a general guideline of, of when we tend to put people on preventative medications. Um, attack frequency is, is really the, the centerpiece there. And, and we use one headache a week or one attack a week as a, as a guideline, keeping in mind that there are plenty of patients that if you optimize their acute treatment well, that sometimes they don't need a preventative treatment. So I've had plenty of people at that, right at that threshold, that three to four headache a month threshold, that um, if you're able to give them a, uh, an acute treatment that is fast, effective, and does not produce uh, disabling side effects that limit them just as much as their headache, then there are plenty of people that, that just wish to take one medication four times a month rather than two medications, one of them being every single day. So, um, so again, remember, that's sort of a guideline. That really opens up the discussion with the patient of whether or not they would be up for using a preventative on a daily basis. Um, I definitely do it when those attacks, uh, no matter how infrequent, do have a huge impact on their ability to function. So uh, I do have people with a low frequency uh, with, with a low frequency that, of course, have a very severe disability uh, based on their jobs, for instance, where they, they just can't be out even, even one day uh, functioning at 50%. So those are people that, um, that are usually on board with being on some type of preventative. Um, when acute medications are not working well and you want to perhaps augment uh, how well they or how effective they are, sometimes a preventative medication can help with that. Um, and then, of course, when people have very uncommon uh, issues that are incredibly disabling, like prolonged aura or brainstem aura or hemiplegic migraine, which, uh, as we said earlier, especially with hemiplegic migraine, where someone can be hemiplegic for days or weeks, um, th those are exactly the kind of people that you want on a preventative. And then lastly, uh, really at the center of this is patient preference. And again, that touches on the fact that that every one of these decisions should come with uh, some education and uh, sort of an agreement with the patient that they're willing to take something on a daily basis um, to prevent their headaches. All right, question number one. All of the following are general principles of migraine preventative therapy except, except start with a low dose and increase slowly, allow for an adequate trial of two to three months, discuss comorbidities, or if controlled at three months, then rapidly taper the dose. Yeah, again, D, it's automatic. D is always the answer. All right, so here are those evidence-based preventative therapies that we talked about. And again, um, there are people that will come in on therapies that are not on this list, and they're very effective for that individual. And I, I typically tend to be okay with that as long as they're not harming that individual. But if I'm, if I'm left to make a decision, usually this is where I start. And so uh, level A evidence, uh, you see up top, you have a couple of uh, anti-epileptic medications and then, of course, a, a, a selection of beta blockers. Um, interestingly enough, all of those actually have an FDA indication for the prevention of migraine. So, um, you know, for those of you that uh, have to 
retake your boards or are about to take your boards for the first time, um, most questions that come up, uh, usually you stick to things that are FDA approved and you can't go wrong. Um, so those are all FDA approved. Level B, uh, now we're getting into the things that we see used very often. And so it's not unusual to see people come in on amitriptyline or venlafaxine uh, or even residents or medical students throw those out as sort of first-line options. And they are. They can be. Uh, but just know that they, they don't have uh, as great of a level of ev evidence as some of the other ones, but they're used frequently. Um, it's interesting to see memantine on there now. Memantine has uh, slowly uh, developed a, a body of evidence, and uh, specifically in people with refractory uh, or migraines that seem to be refractory to a lot of other things. Um, memantine seems to be uh, relatively effective for some. Um, NSAIDs, that's a very old uh, recommendation. And then, of course, we all have patients that come in and they, uh, they don't want a, a traditional pharmacologic. They want something more naturopathic. Um, well, they're in luck because they have, uh, you, you have a, a selection of four uh, more naturopathic options there that have pretty good evidence for the prevention of migraine. So riboflavin or vitamin B2, uh, magnesium, feverfew, histamine. Level C, um, and again, uh, sometimes it's not unusual to see, um, to see uh, I've seen it plenty with our, our medical students and our residents throwing out some of these as, uh, as some of their first choices for, uh, for migraine. And again, can be effective in some, but not where I would start. Um, and, and by that, I mean the things in level U, the gabapentins, the verapamils, um, things like that do not have great evidence for my, uh, episodic migraine prevention. Um, but you'll see them uh, come up again here in a, in a slide or two. CoQ10, another naturopathic option that, uh, that's got some level C evidence. So you saw this device uh, in, in, our last, uh, in our last talk, and not only does it seem to have some uh, acute um, treatment efficacy, but it also seems to have some preventative efficacy as well. It's essentially a superorbital nerve stimulator that if you apply it to your forehead and you stimulate 20 minutes a day, um, that it, it seems at least in, uh, in a couple of studies that have been done on it, that um, it actually does seem to reduce the frequency of, um, of, of not just migraine, but, but headache days specifically. Um, relatively non-invasive. Um, there was a time when um, it was incredibly uncomfortable where I'd put it on my forehead and, I mean, it, it just, it, it hurt. But now there, there, are, there are ways to kind of manipulate the, the intensity of the stimulation now, and it's actually, um, it's actually a, a very well-tolerated device at this point and seems to have a growing body of evidence that it's useful. Sphenopalatine ganglion stimulation. This is, um, this is, this is pretty cool stuff. Um, if, if only it were indicated for migraine. Uh, <laughs> um, but right now it's being used for cluster. And, um, and there are some plans to start studying it in migraine. Um, I'm, I'm very interested to see how that turns out. Um, essentially what it is, it's a, um, it's a stimulator that uh, is placed over the sphenopalatine ganglion and it's anchored within the pterygopalatine fossa. And the, um, the best part about this is that it's, a, it's an entirely cosmetic implantation in that, as you see there, they go through the, uh, through the mouth to implant it. And so you wouldn't even know it's there. 
Um, the other nice thing about it is that the, um, you see that to turn it on and turn it off, there's a handheld device that you actually just hold up to your, uh, to your face to turn on the stimulator, and, um, and it will stimulate for just a, a minute or two, and then you can turn it off. And the exciting thing about, um, about Cluster, at least, since, since we have a slide on SPG STEM, um, is that not only did it seem to be effective for aborting acute cluster attacks, but it also seemed to exert some kind of preventative uh, effect as well. So the more, the more people used this device, the less frequent their attacks became. So it'll be interesting to see what happens to the migraine population once they decide to study this. Um, for those of you, uh, and I imagine there's probably several in here that um, have used things like occipital nerve stimulation, um, I, I, I love things like this. I, if, for those of you that remember the Bion um, from many years ago, it essentially it was an occipital nerve stimulator that was the size of, um, I don't know, maybe it was about uh, just a, a few centimeters long, and it was just like a little cylinder that, it, that was just implanted. Um, the Bion and, and this do have the benefit that they don't have these leads that tunnel through the neck, um, which of course lead to uh, dislodging those leads and, and fracturing the electrodes and all sorts of other issues. So um, it'll be interesting to see how this, um, how this technology develops. Um, again, talking about things that are non-pharmacologic, uh, there's plenty of options for our migraine patients um, and almost without fail. Uh, especially my, my chronic migraine patients that have headache on a daily basis, especially when they have some um, psychiatric or psychological comorbidities, I am very quick to send them to our psychologist and, um, and employ other, other treatments like cognitive behavioral therapy and biofeedback. And sure enough, there, there seems to be some very good evidence that, um, that those are effective. And especially when you put it together with a good evidence-based uh, treatment plan, uh, the two work very well together. And sure enough, um, this is really a testament to that, that when you look at pain intensity, uh, the higher the pain intensity and the, and the higher the disability, if you start adding in behavioral treatments, uh, you tend to see an increasing return on, on that investment. So um, again, like I said, people with a very high headache burden, either in severity, disability, or, uh, or frequency, uh, almost without fail, I, I use our psychologist. So um, I, I won't spend too long on this slide, um, you know, again, because like I said, I, I, I frequently just send people anyway to our psychologist. But, um, you know, there's some guidelines there about, uh, about people who may benefit from, uh, from behavioral therapies. Um, I, I think the one that I like to highlight more uh, than any of the others is number five, um, and that's people who, who become pregnant or who desire to become pregnant, um, especially since the options that we have for them are somewhat limited. Um, those are people that are really ideal for some of these behavioral, th uh, behavioral treatments, and they can be sometimes very effective. So I, I, um, I frequently send my, my pregnant patients or my soon-to-become pregnant patients to our psychologist as well. Um, there's a number of psychiatric comorbidities that can influence your management. We sort of already touched on this a little bit in that it, it can not only affect your, um, your, your medication selection, but it can also affect whether or not you're sending them to psychiatry or psychology. Um, but I, 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 I frequently encounter the very delicate discussion with the patient about sending them to psychiatry or psychology because the, the last thing that I want to do is suggest to them 
that what they're experiencing is just all in their head, right? That it's just a, a, a manifest, manifestation of a psychological or a psychiatric issue. And, um, and I can honestly say that um, uh, I almost never, I could probably count on one hand the number of patients that I've seen in uh, well over a decade that, um, that it was truly a, a more psychiatric issue. I think these things tend to occur together, and they occur together frequently. And my discussion with them usually hinges on the fact that they, uh, and a lot of other patients, like us to be a little bit more holistic in our approach. And part of being holistic includes dealing with the psyche, right, the, the mind and the, and the connection between the mind and the body. And when you present it that way, I think they get it a little bit more, that you're not saying that it's a psychiatric issue, but that we can't address these things in isolation. Addressing the psychological issues along with the physiologic issues usually leads to a better outcome. All right, chronic migraine prevention. Um, it's a little different. It's a little different from ep episodic migraine. So remember, the, uh, the medications that you saw um, were really for, uh, for episodic migraine. We're going to touch into um, chronic now. So again, remember, chronic migraine is when the frequency of attacks, um, or not, not just attacks, but the frequency of headache days um, starts to reach 15 or greater. So again, um, really individualize the therapy that you select. Uh, again, try and take, uh, take advantage of some of those comorbidities. Um, you know, try and make sure that they, that they stick with it for, uh, for several months. More often than not, people who come in with a more chronic form of migraine are people who have spent years getting there, right? Um, a number of people who say that, you know, five years of daily headache, 10 years of daily headache, and, and again, those are the people that sometimes expect an immediate fix. And those are exactly the kind of people that have to be reminded, okay, you've had 10 continuous years of hypersensitivity of, of those pain pathways. Uh, it's going to take a while to kind of settle them down. You can see here that the preventative treatment options uh, when it comes to evidence-based are actually quite different uh, from those for episodic. Um, the things that are similar, again, you see topiramate, again, you see valproate. Um, but interestingly enough, gabapentin, gabapentin, which was level U for episodic, uh, all of a sudden seems to be a, a, a reasonable option for, for chronic. Um, and it's one that, that I use not, not uncommonly. Um, antidepressants, amitriptyline, again, is back. Um, fluoxetine, fluoxetine was level U for episodic, but it, again, it's on the, on the list for, uh, for chronic. And then tizanidine. Um, interestingly enough, with tizanidine, um, even though it's not necessarily that my, my first go-to pick, um, it's not uncommon for me to have people come to me already on some kind of muscle relaxant that they take for any one of a number of other, uh, other reasons. And in those situations, sometimes what I'll do is I'll just swap it out. Um, so if they're uh, you know, on a cyclobenzaprine or something like that, I'll, uh, I'll sometimes say, okay, well, let's, let's try switching you. Uh, to tizanidine and see if we get that muscle relaxant effect you were getting and perhaps maybe even some migraine prevention as well. Neurotoxins, uh, onobotulinum toxin A, um, again, at least uh, at the time, um, until just a couple of months ago, was really just the, the only FDA-approved uh, option for people with chronic migraine. And we can see that that is, uh, in, a, in an upcoming slide, we can see that that has changed. Um, not, uh, vagal nerve stimulation. You heard about this a little bit acutely. 
Um, it turns out that, uh, that it does seem to have some preventative benefits as well. And at least in this relatively small study of people who uh, spent a couple of months using it in a, uh, in a, in a sham controlled study, um, followed by an, an open label phase, uh, it seems that the longer that they used it, the, the, the more significant their decrement in, in, uh, in headache days became. So, um, you know, where this is going to fit in in the, uh, in, the, in the treatment protocols that we use, I, I'm, I'm still not entirely sure where this is going to fit, but, um, but just know that uh, there's plenty of options other than medications that, that seem to be promising. And, um, and when people come in and they say they've been on everything and they hand you a list and there's, you know, 20 pages of medications that they've tried, um, just know that there's a, there's a number of things coming out now, including stimulators that may be good options for those people. All right, so what's new in preventative treatment? Uh, I'm, I'm still looking for our, our person from earlier this morning, not here. Oh, man. <laughs> so um, the question that was, um, that was raised by, uh, by someone in the audience earlier was about uh, arenumab. And, um, and it wasn't really... I guess that was really the question. What about arenumab? Um, so there's um, a, a number of supportive studies uh, at this point for CGRP antagonists. And this was the, the first to actually come out and be FDA approved for, for migraine in general. So that includes migraine in the episodic form and in the chronic form. And um, interestingly enough, we have been able to see a pretty significant decrement over time um, in people who use this medication. Um, it's a once monthly injection. Um, at this point, you have an option of, of a 70 milligram or a 140 milligram dose. And, um, and I don't think there's any consensus at this point um, which one to use and what in which scenario. But I think that that's one of the questions that we're going to have answered in the months to years that come since, uh, since it's been available. Um, the other interesting thing to note about, um, about this medication in particular is on the right where you see that um, you have about 50% of people with a 50% improvement. And that's not bad when, when, we, uh, when we talk about odds of improvement, uh, especially when we consider other medications that um, uh, that have been used that are on those lists, those traditional pharmacologic medications, which typically um, usually are poorly tolerated and usually don't perform quite as well. Um, but uh, it's, it's just interesting and exciting to, to have another, uh, another option. Again, I, I, have, um, I have cautious optimism, but optimism, um, because the studies have been great. I think we'll, we'll see more in the, next, uh, in the next months or years what a, what a real-world uh, response to uh, to medications like this is going to be, but at this point, um, things are very promising. Uh, from a um, from a tolerability standpoint, uh, things seem to be very good. Um, you see, you know, some kind of unusual reactions that that are probably unrelated to the medication, like nasopharyngitis, things like that. Um, but if you look at the at the package insert, really the um, the main one that's highlighted. Uh, is is constipation, which is at about three percent, um, and otherwise it appears to be incredibly well tolerated. Um, I, I think um, not just in in my experience, but the anecdotal experience of a lot of uh, colleagues as well. 
All right, medication overuse. Um, about 50 to 80% of chronic migraine patients do overuse, or at least they use acute or abortive medications to a degree that they might meet criteria uh, for medication overuse. And the important thing to note here is that not all chronic migraine patients overuse medications, despite the fact that they have headache on, a, uh, on a, at least half the days of the month to sometimes every day of the month. Um, not everybody uses medications to that, that frequency. Um, we got to distinguish the, the difference between the behavior of overusing medication and true medication overuse headache. And I think that um, especially with, uh, with those of you that, uh, that treat chronic pain outside of migraine, um, I, I think you see a number of people that take medications on a daily basis and don't develop medication overuse headache. So, um, so the phenomenon does occur uh, that, that someone can take something daily and not have a medication overuse headache. So that's the distinguishing feature between the act of medication overuse and the development of medication overuse headache. Of course, there is a definition for it, uh, like many other things in headache, and you see that, um, that really that, that time frame, like chronic migraine, is three months, 15 days of acute treatment use, and that's 15 days of any combination of things uh, but if we're talking about triptans, ergots, um, or opioids, um, we actually reduce that to 10. So 10 or more days of usage, and I'm starting to at least consider uh, the, the possibility of medication overuse um, in, in my, my patients. So this is a big debate, actually, uh, and, and interestingly enough, it, it tends to be a big debate between the... Um, between the uh, North America and Europe uh, as far as an approach, and you see a lot of people that will argue for just taking someone off of an, a, uh, an overused medication, and that's the only thing that you need to do. Just abruptly stop it, uh, maybe give them something for, for transitional treatment, and then see what happens after that. And then there are some people that would argue, well, why not just put someone on a preventative therapy and, uh, and, and see if that fixes the problem. And I think more often than not, what you see is that both of those approaches um, don't necessarily lead to the best outcome. And uh, I think more and more we're finding that doing both simultaneously is a very good and effective strategy. So, um, so there are a number of people that will start a preventative therapy, regardless of whether or not they believe someone has medication overuse headache. And at the same time, transition them off that medication that is being overused and find other options to help them survive those other days um, where they might think that they need an acute treatment um, that, uh, that may uh, you know, still contribute to some type of medication overuse. All right, question number two. Patients with chronic migraine almost always overuse medications, true or false? Right. Uh, yeah, again, always. Always look out for always. Always is never the right answer. Or wait. All right, clinical pearls. Um, Dr. Vanderplim uh, touched on this a little bit. Um, how many days are they entirely pain-free? Right? Because the answer of how many headaches do you have can be very different from the answer to how many days are they pain-free. So um, the, the very... Um, uh, I, I guess, incorrect way to approach this would be to say, how many headache days do you have? And they say, well, you know, I have uh, four headaches. And then you start to go down kind of an episodic treatment algorithm 
as opposed to how many days are you truly headache free, where you're truly at a zero out of 10, you don't have a headache of any severity, any type, any feature, and then sometimes you see that that number becomes a whole lot higher, 15, 20. Um, and then that changes um, essentially the options that you have to pick from when we're looking at the episodic uh, treatment options versus the chronic treatment options. So just keep that in mind. Try and get a feel for how many days people are truly headache free. Try and get a feel for what patients are using over the counter because uh, frequently uh, people don't necessarily identify those as medications. So, um, you know, be sure to ask about over-the-counter medications, naturopathic medications, um, other treatment options that, um, that don't necessarily come from the pharmacy. Uh, interrogate the, uh, the entire list of, of treatments that someone is using. And then, lastly, I, I think I've hit on this enough times, um, remind patients that it does take time and, um, and that it's going gonna, it's gonna to require uh, perhaps several months before we see uh, you know, really significant benefits if we happen to see benefits with that particular medication. And you've seen, um, at, least in the, um, I- at least in the charts and graphs that we showed here earlier, that uh, whether it was a, a medication or a device, um, that, that you usually continue to see improvement out to month three, month four. Um, this holds true for, for onobotulinum toxin A injections as well, where uh, perhaps you don't see a, a dramatic improvement in that first month or two. Um, so if I could throw in another, another thing there, I usually tell people to, to stick with it. I don't tend to consider them a failure of Onabot if, they, um, if they've only done it once. I usually give them a, a two or three trials before I'm looking to um, uh, take them off of it, just like I would with any other medication. All right, so goals of preventative therapy. Not only to reduce the headache frequency, but reduce uh, response to acute treatment, reduce the severity of attacks, uh, reduce the frequency of their, uh, their more severe attacks. Um, start low, gradually increase. Make sure that you actually do that, to the actual increase part. Uh, monitor how they do over time and have them check in uh, here and there to make sure that they're, um, that they're using the medication, that they're not having problems with it. Um, because every now and then you'll run across those, those patients that don't like it for one reason or another. They stop it. They don't tell you. They come in a couple of months later, and now they've gone two months without anything, um, as opposed to giving you the opportunity to either tweak those medications and get them to a point where they're more tolerable or more effective um, or put in some other kind of treatment option for them. Um, monitor how they're using their acute treatments as well. Um, limit medications that may be interfering with what you're trying to accomplish. And of course, um, I think this is like the fifth slide now, uh, allow two to three months. Uh, <laughs> um, select your medications based on the level of evidence. Um, if, you're, uh, if you're starting out new, um, you know, where you, where you have a clean slate. But remember that there are plenty of other options that don't have that level A evidence that might be effective as well. So keep an open mind, but if, um, if you have to pick one, start off with the best evidence. Um, distinguish medication overuse from the actual phenomenon of medication overuse headache, which are two totally different things. And with that, I will end there, and I think we are doing great on time. Um, we have an opportunity to maybe take about 20 minutes or so for questions. Um, Dr. Powers, uh, for those of you that were here this morning, is back. 
um, and mic'd up and ready to go. And Dr. Vanderplein will come up here. So we, we can take any questions you have about any of the afternoon talks or even this morning's talks, or just about whatever's on your mind. Yes. Well, the, the vagal nerve stimulator is external. Um, the sphenopalatine ganglion stimulator is, um, we, we've seen it done by neurosurgery. We've also seen it done by ENT and oromaxillofacial surgery. And, um, and I think it's, it's not clear at this point uh, whether or not one specialty is better than another at it. Um, I, I think they've all done a very good job, at least in some of the earlier trials, uh, of, of doing it well. Yes, sir. take that one? So I do, um, I actually on that one slide where I kind of had all the lists, um, <laughs> steroids are on there and they're as kind of a rescue as you said, you know, as a pulse. Um, I do use them sometimes in my infusions when people come in or sometimes I'll just do an oral steroid taper for people. Um, I obviously, because of the side effects that can go along with steroids, uh, use them uh, on a limited basis, meaning that I don't use them more frequently than usually every three months or so in patients. Um, but, uh, but yes, it is something that can be used. And there is um, a really good uh, meta-analysis that was done by Dr. Serena Orr, where she looked at various emergency department uh, infusion therapies. And um, as far as use of steroids, um, there's been some evidence potentially about them helping reduce recurrence um, upon kind of acute presentation. Uh, to the emergency department. Yes. That's a good question. Uh, there has been a long-standing debate in the headache world about when people have, so, so there's one component which is if people have premonitory phase and can use that to identify an, imp uh, an impending attack and then people who have aura. So the aura component, there's a debate as to whether you take the medication, and it's usually triptans, which is what we're asking about, um, before or after the aura. And I have Classically, the teaching has been that you take your triptan as soon as the aura is over and the headache begins. Um, but there are some patients that that does not seem to work as well, and so they take their triptan as soon as the aura starts. Now, as far as taking medications in the uh, premonitory phase, that's something that is probably going to be studied a lot more. There are I believe one trial that I can think of, and it, was it naratriptan, mm -hmm. um, that looked at use of uh, a triptan in the premonitory phase and actually did have positive results for better response. And so that, I mean, requires that a patient identifies that they have a premonitory phase. <coughs> yes. I probably can't. I, I, are, are you, are so, you able to? Um, so I have had a handful of very select patients that have been admitted to our facility for ketamine infusions. Um, 
I would say that, and this is completely non-evidence-based, this is just my personal experience, um, that it sometimes helps while the ketamine is running and as soon as we turn the ketamine off, their headaches come back. Um, and so when we've used it, it's been with very clear understanding and expectations that you're coming in to help try to reduce your overall pain. This is not going to be curative in any way. Um, and that, you know, this is a uh, set um, admission for three to five days, and when that time is up, regardless of where your pain is at, you're leaving the hospital. Um, so, unfortunately, I haven't had um, great success with it. Yeah, and, and by, by kind of saying that I, I couldn't really comment on it too much, it's really just because from a personal standpoint, I, I, I can't really um, describe my own personal experience with it. I, I know that I think Mayo Clinic has, has admitted a few patients for that. I, I, don't, um, I don't typically ad admit uh, people for ketamine infusion, but I can tell you that there's a number of people who, uh, who do and, uh, and several patients who, who actually do respond well. So um, if, if you're finding yourself at the end of your rope, um, it, it's, it's certainly not unreasonable to try. Yes. Oh gosh, yeah. No, I, I um, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, um, I absolutely utilize my physical therapist, and and I'm very uh, thankful that they're literally right down the hallway. Um, so I, I utilize them perhaps uh, just as much as I do uh, our, our psychologists, uh, just from the standpoint that exercise tends to be good, uh, especially for people with with chronic disease, chronic pain. Um, I also find that my physical therapists are outstanding at doing a good head and neck evaluation and uh, adding other modalities like dry needling, uh, manipulation, massage. Um, they're fabulous, so I, I absolutely do send them. Um, I do love to utilize my nurses as well who do, uh, yeah, no, um, my, I, I, I cannot function without my nurses. They, they're just fabulous at providing the kind of education that um, sometimes I, I miss or, or don't have the, the opportunity to, um, to do with my patients. And, and my nurses are really the ones who are on the front lines of those phone calls that come in. And when they've already made that connection with the, with the patient and sort of already know, um, you know, what, what or, or how to counsel them as far as, um, you know, how to titrate their medications or taper their medications or get through issues that they're having, very effective. Um, yeah, I, I think the other thing is it's really important, and Dr. Powers can speak to this the most because he's an expert in this, but framing that um, things like cognitive behavioral therapy and biofeedback, um, those are not secondary treatment strategies. They really are primary treatment mm -hmm. strategies that have a really high level of evidence. And I think sometimes when we meet with the patients, um, you know, we have a tendency to jump right into medications and things like that and then say, oh, yeah and this, or it comes up on the second visit, and then in the patient's mind, they almost view that like, oh, now you're just sending me to these people because you've given up, and that really isn't the case, and I think that's a mistake I fall into commonly where I almost set it up for the patients now to perceive it as if it's going to be something that, um, you know, it, it's okay, well, this is, the, you know, this is where we're left kind of thing, and that really isn't the case. I agree. Dr. Powers, any thoughts on that? I, mean, I just think one of the things we always have to reflect on is we probably know much less than we think we know yeah. about how our patients get better. And the brain and its response to pain and expectation is exceptionally high no matter what the tool is. 
Um, but I think integrative health in pain conditions for people that are struggling with disability is by far the most logical form of treatment. How we do that in our healthcare system is challenging. Um, but I think anyone who spends more than a day or two with patients experiencing pain echo what everyone in the room has said, that you need to have several tools working together. And the key is in our different disciplines, how do we learn from each other about how to explain what all of us do collectively? Uh, we've written a paper in Headache that talks about that for how do you present cognitive behavioral therapy to patients. It has lots of different handouts and things in it, but it's a constant craft of how we talk about this with patients. But um, usually it's going to take more than one thing to get you better if you've got pretty tough disease. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I, I would agree with that. Um, I, I think everyone is completely in agreement with you. Um, yeah. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, and lidocaine's a nice option too with patients that might be pregnant because we're so limited in our treatment options and it, it's not completely without its risks, but at least it is less risky than other modalities and with it not being systemically administered again, you hope that it is less risky. Um, so, so that's something that we do consider um, using in some of our pregnant patients that require some form of treatment because their headaches are so bad. I agree. That's a that's a great option. Oh, yes. Oh yeah, yeah. So um, yeah. So you mean other than catheters or other than sphenocath? Yeah. Well, so, um, you know, I, I, I guess knowing I, I have no disclosures with the, with the catheter people, but uh, Alivio is very similar to SpinaCat. And then there's a, a device called the TX360, um, which uh, does the same thing. Um, all of those are options. And then, of course, if you want to go really old school, um, you can use the, you know, long Q-tips up the nose. Um, well, it, it does, right? I mean, but but arguably, um, you know, when you when you use the catheter, it's still going to take about as much time of them sitting, uh, kind of semi-recumbent. Uh, you know, it, it's it's not often you just squirt and then out the door. So, yeah, Alivio um, TX three sixty, Sphenocath, and then the Q-tip up the nose. Yeah, that one rolls off the tongue. Yeah, it kind of yeah. does. Kind of does. I didn't mean to use the branded word Q-tip. The, the, cotton, the cotton applicator. Please don't put that on our. I don't have any Q-tip uh, disclosures either. Yes, sir. So at my institution, we we actually aren't allowed to prescribe it or and or really comment on it. Um, but bottom line is I have many patients that are on it um, and they don't want to stop. Agreed. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. Um, at this point, um, 
I haven't seen. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. Um, talking about uh, CBD oil or cannabis, um, and I, per, per our institutional policy, we, we don't prescribe it, uh, nor can I really comment on it, but I have many patients that um, have uh, medical marijuana cards because um, medical marijuana is uh, legal in the state of Arizona, and so they use either edibles or CBD or uh, smoke it, and, and they don't appear to be planning on stopping doing it anytime soon. Right. Yeah. Um, likewise, I have a very similar answer, um, kind of limited in what I can say about it. But uh, the the patients that I have that do uh, come in and say that they that they use it uh, or feel like they can admit to me that they can use it, honestly, I, I, I feel like it's like a lot of other medications. I have some people that say it's about fifty fifty. About fifty percent say that they don't necessarily notice any change, um, but that they get some other benefits out of it. Um, and then 50% of them that say, you know what, I feel better. And, uh, and I typically, um, typically don't, don't tell them to either use it or stop it. Yeah. And, oh, go ahead. Have you been able to change any of their own medications based on the fact that they're using the THC? Well, for those that improve, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I've, I mean, it's keeping in mind, it, it's, we're talking handfuls of people that, yeah. that come in. I'm in Texas, right? So, yeah. <laughs> so uh, of, of those people, I, I, yeah, the ones that respond, that cohort that responds, yeah. I've been able to decrease. And I think, I mean, the other thing I have to, we have to consider is that who I'm actually seeing in clinic is probably a biased sample. So the fact that they're coming to see me is indicating that they're continuing to have headaches, um, which means that whatever they are doing is obviously not completely working. For the patients of mine that I'm maybe not seeing back and are on uh, taking that, then maybe I'm not seeing them back because they're better. So, you know, we obviously have a biased uh, population. And just the other thing to be mindful of, which I'd mentioned earlier, is that, you know, we do have to keep in mind that with migraine pathophysiology, there are, you know, migraine mimickers with the periodic syndromes like uh, uh, cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. And so, you know, there might be something from a pathophysiological level that we do need to keep in mind that uh, um, in a, you know, it, there, there is, you know, some problems there potentially. Yeah. yeah. Dr. Powers, what, what, what's your experience with CBD or cannabis just from a behavioral standpoint? Well, certainly in a pediatric setting, we don't <laughs> hear much about it. Um, I guess that's its own problem potentially. <laughs> we, we do inquire about its use with adolescents, but... I wouldn't say them, any of them I've ever spoken to thought they were treating their headache with it. Good point. Uh, yes. There is a researcher at the Cleveland Clinic named Eric Barron, and he works a lot in Canada and does research around medical marijuana and headaches. He's written some really nice reviews, um, and that might be a good group to start. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Those Canadians. Uh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yes. So for people that have really significant vascular risk factors, I do not use uh, triptans. 
Um, the group of patients where trip 10 use, um, I would say, is a bit more controversial um, is uh, patients with things like hemiplegic migraine or migraine with brainstem aura, where a lot of it's is just that we don't actually have the um, data as to safety and therefore it's not being used. But in patients who have uh, known coronary artery disease or MIs or strokes, uh, I'm usually not using triptans. Uh, that population is really difficult to treat, um, and that's where I often get into, um, you know, from that table using certain medications that um, are more off-label use. Um, so sometimes using uh, the neuroleptic anti-nauseants, using sometimes muscle relaxers, very carefully dosed, especially in elderly populations, um, using things like as-needed gabapentin, stuff like that. And so there you're kind of working in the uncharted territory world because you are so limited with your FDA-approved options just because they have so many contraindications or potential for um, serious adverse events with um, the medications that are FDA-approved. So DHE uh, being a vasoactive medication like triptans, uh, I, I lump DHE and triptans together. Again, that's you know me personally, and there are other people out there that take bigger risks and do things, <laughs> but uh, but I don't. Yes. So with riboflavin, I, I tend to go about 400 milligrams. Um, so a lot of a lot of people will say, well, you know, I'm taking a B complex vitamin that that doesn't even scratch the surface. So 400 of that, CoQ10 tends to be about 300 milligrams a day, uh, magnesium somewhere in the ballpark of 400 to 500 milligrams. Use fever few much. I don't. I have patients that are taking it as a combination, uh, in like in in some migraine pills that they have, but I I actually uh, have not prescribed it. On its own. Likewise. Yeah, and then uh, Butterbur is something that if you look at old guidelines, you may have seen it come up, uh, but because of concerns with potential liver toxicity because of processing, um, those guidelines have been revised. Yes. Right. Yeah, that's a um, potentially kind of a complex answer, right? Because uh, I, I guess the, the first part of it is um, I, I think between the imaging studies that have already been done and the studies that we've already done about CGRP levels and its relationship to migraine pathophysiology, it is absolutely conceivable that there could be some way to show someone, okay, here is the objective evidence that you have migraine. Now, I would actually argue 
that we don't necessarily need that, right? Because based on, on criteria, based on what the patient is experiencing, I sort of don't necessarily need the confirmatory blood test. But where I think that it could be very useful is um, I, I, I think it's going to be useful in identifying who is going to respond better to a certain medication, especially when we're talking about CGRP antagonists. So, um, you know, as you saw, even though the, the data on the CGR, CGPR, CGRP antagonists is, is great, um, it's not 100% despite the fact that supposedly that's the crux of migraine pathophysiology. So why is it that they're not responding? And so I, I can see some potential utility for things like a blood test to uh, maybe help me decide which treatment is going to be best. And, I mean, as you mentioned, CGRP isn't specific to migraine, so we see, you know, it, it can be involved in post-traumatic headache and cluster headache and things like that. So, um, so it, it, I, I agree that it might be a test that's more useful for determining treatment selection and treatment outcomes rather than a test for uh, diagnosis. I think, I think with such a complex neurological disease, if you think about the research on biomarkers and selecting patients, uh, it would be relatively fanciful to think that you're going to reduce it to something that simple. Uh, probably more promising is the way pain is processed. Mm -hmm. Testing about quantitative sensory testing, those types of things may have more promise down the road of saying who might respond to something better than another or changes in brain function as opposed to structure or abnormalities. Mm -hmm. But that all being said, it's very early in that process. I, I was talking to people earlier that the challenge in migraine research is the research the depth of research historically has been so shallow, and the investment in migraine research for the population has been so insignificant that as scientists, practitioners, we're always talking more about theory and conjecture than we are data, even today. It's like, well, these aren't evidence-based, but they work for some people. Yeah, but why they work and how they work, and are they primarily a placebo effect, um, probably that hypothesis has greater evidence behind it than something that's biologically specific in a complex neurological disease. So we're, we're hoping to get to that point, whether or not the treatment's device, behavior, drug, combination. But I, I think we have to be patient. One last question. That's a, that's a great question, right? Um, and, and I think that, again, the kind of real-world use is going to give us a better idea of how it fits in, right, with the overall treatment plan. My, my bias is that it's rare that I find one treatment that is the answer for everything. And, and even when we talk about, um, you know, even just last year, right, there were, there were several more slides on, on, on a botulinum toxin A injections. And even in those situations, I almost never use them in isolation. Uh, usually there's another medication, another treatment modality that, that I use to augment the response. I anticipate that the, the CGR, CGRP, CGRP antagonist will be similar in that respect. And I think the other thing is when things go into real-world use, um, insurance uh, sometimes dictates how we get to use them in the sense that I imagine the majority of insurance providers are going to state that patients need to fail a certain number of therapies or have a certain number of headaches. And so in that sense, you're already 
kind of changing the way you're using these medications because it's not just a blank slate. It's, uh, you know, it's being externally kind of mandated who and how these therapies get to be used. Um, whether, I, I mean, I think probably another question that's going to come up with insurance providers is can you have concurrent Botox and CGRP antibodies? Are they going to pay for both or just one? You know, and so these are all the unknowns mm -hmm. that will, you know, cross those bridges when we get there. And I would hope with the emphasis at the NIH with opioid epidemic and an increased emphasis in pain research that the hope would be that public-private partnerships might actually engage in the pragmatic trials that are really necessary to answer the questions that are important to you as clinicians. You know, a highly internally valid efficacy study published in the New England Journal that shows a 1.4 headache frequency difference from placebo is not exciting to a patient. It's not. I start with it, 10 headaches and I go down to seven. You have disability data to support that. The inclusion and exclusion criteria are very restrictive. So then you go out and practice and you're trying to do something with people that don't look like anybody in the study. So the honest answer is we're sort of at the beginning of a new phase of a tool. And anyone that tells you differently I don't think is being very scientific. But the question is if we can conduct pragmatic trials with the kind of patients of large enough numbers that you see and you see in this real world experience some sense of where do they work better, when do they work better, with what they work better, that's exciting. Right? So you got to start someplace. But I think we have to be objective in our thinking that a starting point means we've got a lot to learn, but isn't it exciting that we have something to learn? And we're also working with an individual person in front of us. So hopefully we can uh, get rid of some of these barriers that are more artificial and provide data to support it. So it's not a payer system. It's not an anecdotal case study. It really is leveraging bioinformatics and what we have at these large levels of data to actually ask that question scientifically. Uh, and I'm hopeful that the enthusiasm for these new agents might be enough of an impetus in the headache field to actually get to those questions in the next five to ten years. And that really is an optimistic opportunity. Well, thank you all very much. I especially enjoyed the, uh, the Q&A session. Uh, thanks for your attention. And of course, if there's some other questions that, that you have, we'll, we'll be up here for a little while. But thanks. Thanks again for, uh, for joining.